Welcome to the May 2022 podcast for the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. I'm Kelly Tappenden, Professor and Head of Kinesiology and Nutrition at the University of Illinois Chicago and Editor-in-Chief of JPEN. The paper we're going to discuss today is entitled A Preglutide, a Novel Glucagon-Like Peptide 2 Analog Improves Fluid Absorption in Patients with Short Bowel Syndrome Intestinal Failure. Findings from a placebo-controlled randomized phase two trial. And we're fortunate today to have the first author, Joanna Eliasson, here from Reitz Hospital in Copenhagen, Denmark, on behalf of her colleagues. Welcome, Dr. Eliasson. Thank you so much, and um, thank you for inviting me, and great to be here. Well, you're very welcome. Now, I think we need to start for our listeners by letting them know what a preglutide is. There may be a little bit of GLP-2 peptide fatigue or confusion because most people are now familiar with to-do-glutide, which has been on the market in the U.S. for nearly 10 years, also available in Europe. And this is a different analog. So this is an analog that is longer acting. It would be only dosed once per week, right? Can you tell us about a preglutide compared to to to-do-glutide? Yes, as you pointed out, um, apraglutide is a uh, long-acting synthetic GLP-2 analog, and it differs from human GLP-2 by a four-amino acid substitution. You know, native GLP-2 is very rapidly uh, degraded by the enzyme uh, peptidase 4 or, or DPP-4. But through these modifications, apraglutide has a, an increased resistance to DPP-4 degradation, which contributes to its increased half-life. And preclinical studies have shown that Apragotide has a low clearance, a slow absorption after subcutaneous administration, and a high protein binding compared with native GLP-2, as well as other GLP-2 analogs. So this, you know, collectively results in a uh, prolonged half-life of approximately 72 hours, then which, as you said, makes it suitable for once weekly dosing. And as you also pointed out, to do glutide is limited by a rather short half-life of, I think, approximately three to five hours. And I guess the shorter half-life has several limitations both with regards to potentially leading to a inconsistent fluid and nutrient absorption throughout the 24 hours, but also then the short half-life of the two type requiring daily administration instead of weekly, which is the novel or the novelty or the potential of, of a pragotide. I suspect that many patients would appreciate the once weekly dosing protocol, given that it is a subcutaneous injection, right? So tell us, this is a phase two trial. It's following up on some work that you've done looking at balanced studies and showing improvement in wet weight as well as energy absorption, right? Here, you're actually doing a randomized controlled trial to look at efficacy and safety, I believe, right? Uh, What was your study design? So the study design was a placebo-controlled, double-blinded, randomized crossover phase two trial. So it was uh, placebo-controlled. And I think, to my knowledge, at least this is the first phase two trial that has been placebo-controlled when we're talking about you know, these trials for short bowel syndrome patients. And the reason we were able to do a placebo-controlled and also having this crossover design, because as you know, these patients are very heterogeneous. So in order to measure the true treatment effect, we do need to have a crossover design where they serve as their own reference. But previous phase two trials have used metabolic balance studies primarily to assess this, as we have also done. But these are very laborious examinations, which require that the patients to be admitted to hospital for several days. So in this trial, by measuring urine production instead, 
we could in fact make these examinations or measurements a little bit easier for the patients and thereby also including a placebo arm on top of this crossover design. It was a placebo-controlled double-blind randomized crossover phase two trial. But since we were quite curious because we could only assess one dose in this study design, we actually also included an extension arm to this trial, which was in an open-label regimen where patients were treated with 10 milligram apricotide. So the first phase of the trial was placebo-controlled and randomized, whereas the extension part was open-label and included a, a higher dose of apricotide, namely a 10 milligram dose interesting study design and kind of gets dual purpose, right? You can look at the effect of a preglutide at the five milligram dose, but also were you able to use your stats so that you could compare the 10 milligram dose, albeit not placebo controlled to where the placebo control was and really look at whether or not there was a dosing difference too, or should that be viewed separately? Uh, we did do in the statistical comparison, we did compare it to the placebo group with the, uh, you know, important limitation, as you point out, that the, the treatment was in fact not placebo controlled. But we did utilize that in the statistical analysis to see if there was any different to the placebo, but also between the five and the 10 milligram dose. I think that's clever given how difficult it is to do these studies in a rare disease like short bowel syndrome associated intestinal failure. So good thinking on that. You studied eight patients. They all had intestinal failure as opposed to insufficiency, right? What were some of the other inclusion and exclusion criteria? Yeah, so they all have to have uh, intestinal failure or short bowel syndrome associated intestinal failure, meaning that it had to be um, secondary to intestinal resection of, of small bowel. They also had to be stable patients, so meaning that they had to be treated with parental support for at least the last 12 months, and they had to receive parental infusions for at least three days a week. We also wanted to ensure, of course, that these, you know, have a, a severe level of, of absorption in order to be able to, you know, demonstrate an effect in such a relatively small study. So they also had a fecal output of above 1,500 grams per day. So their, their sort of baseline absorptive capacity was was assessed both by their level of PS dependency, so more than three days a week, uh, and also having a fecal output more than 1,500 grams per day. They were also only allowed to have a jejunostomy or an ileostomy, so we did not include any patients with colon incontinuity in this trial. That's interesting. Why did you not include any patients with colon? I think it would be interesting to do a corresponding study with patients in colon incontinuity, I guess because we were limited by, you know, the resources for carrying out the trial and then this sort of phase of drug development, wanting to be able to demonstrate an effect. We selected this population because we know they have higher baseline parental support requirements in the beginning, especially when it comes to fluid requirements. And when I think when you look at patients with a colon incontinuity, they do have a slightly different phenotype. So they may be more energy dependent than fluid dependent if you look at the relative requirements. And as you might recall, this was a, you know, as you call this is a trial based on, on urine production. That's also the reason for selecting this intestinal failure patients with a jejunostomy or ileostomy since they were thought to have very quite, you know, big absolute fluid requirements where it would be easier to demonstrate an effect on the fluid absorption by looking at urinary production. 
You know, that's, that's an excellent answer. Exactly what I thought, but I just want to underscore, I think, what we've learned about remnant anatomy or what we've always known about normal physiology and the, that these patients with an ostomy are going to be primarily fluid dependent. And as you said, your your urine output is the way you're assessing it. So, you know, that makes good sense. From the STEPS trial too, with Tuduglutide, we know that this patient population responds much more quickly, right? And so given you're looking at a four-week intervention, I think that that's much more aligned too. If you had patients with a colon incontinuity, not only would you want to rethink whether urine output was the right measure, but you may also want a longer intervention period. No, I agree. And I think also if you look at both the metabolic balance trial of a pregnant type, but also previous balance trials with DLP2 analogs, if you look at the improvements in energy absorption compared to the ones in fluid, they are not as big when it comes to the magnitude of effect. And also looking at that improvement in energy would, would also used to emphasize what you said, that you would need a, a longer treatment period probably to be able to show a improvements in energy absorption. Very good. So you were interested in safety uh, and then had some efficacy uh, secondary endpoints. Tell us what happened. Yes. So with regards to safety, most of the adverse events were mild to moderate and they were gastrointestinal in character. And most of them mirrored what we already know from other GLP-2 analogs and relating to the physiological effect of the drug. We did see patients present with polyuria, decreased gastrointestinal stoma output, stoma complications, which covers uh, phenomena like an increased stoma protrusion or a decreased stoma diameter. We also had common adverse event like decreased thirst, edema, and increased weight, as well as decreased appetite. All of these effects were, in fact, compatible with the expected physiological effect of GLP-2. And again, during this, you know, quite limited trial period, we did not make any aggressive reductions in parental support. Also, because when we were capturing the treatment effects pre and post baseline, we kept their oral intake and their parental support constant to be able to measure the effect on urine production. Therefore, a lot of the side effects such as edema or polyuria are expected to disappear with an adequate parental support weaning, which you would see in a, in a real world setting. So this is really interesting to me because though they, of course, are recorded as adverse events, to your point, these are consistent with the physiological effect and actually what we would expect for a drug that is working and doing exactly what it's supposed to do, right? Increasing urine volume because there's more absorption of fluid from the intestine to make that urine. Decreasing stomal output because malabsorption has decreased. Stomal complications where they need to be refitted by their ostomy nurse because their stoma has grown, tissue has accrued. You know, all of these things are very consistent with what we would see as positive signs if we were in a situation where we were treating patients with a preglutin. And of course, the edema would, in a clinical situation, would be reduced and dealt with very quickly by reducing the fluid volume being given parenterally. So, you know, these are all very positive things, even though uh, they fall in the column of adverse events. Were there any serious adverse events? So there were no serious adverse events that were evaluated as being related to a preglutide treatment. There were, however, eight serious adverse events in total reported in five different patients. 
and they were, as I mentioned, assessed as non-related and, and equally distributed between placebo and active treatment periods. And they uh, mainly related to catheter complications. So uh, there were both mechanical complications of their permanent catheter for parental support, which uh, required hospitalization and replacement. And there were also several cases of catheter-related bloodstream infections. These are, of course, well-known complications that you do see in this population. We did have one patient who had multiple reoccurring episodes of catheter-related bloodstream infections, but overall we assessed that as, as non-related as there were factors in this individual patient's life which might have explained why he or she suffered from frequent catheter-related infections. Tell us about your efficacy um, secondary outcomes. Our main efficacy endpoint was a change in urine production and urinary sodium excretion from baseline. So both as surrogate markers of an increased fluid and sodium absorption. And when we look at the uh, adjusted mean, comparing the 5 milligram dose to placebo, uh, a pregocyte significantly increased uh, urine volume output by 714 milliliters per day. And when we then compared the 10 milligram dose to placebo, that significantly increased urine volume output by 795 milliliters per day. So we saw very similar increases in urine production in both the active doses, and, and that was significant as compared to placebo. With, with regards to the um, urinary sodium excretion, we did observe an increase in several patients. However, the increase in urinary sodium excretion was only significant in the 10 milligram group as compared to placebo. Okay, so this is interesting. These urine volumes that you're reporting are exactly in the same range, about three quarters of a liter, uh, what was shown in the phase two trials with tajiglutide, right? Uh, so a similar magnitude of effect. Now, did you in fact have an adequate washout period in that those urine volumes fell back down to baseline in the washout periods. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. So we had a washout of six to 10 weeks in between these treatment periods, and we did see their urine volumes reverting to almost exactly baseline measurements. So that there was no sign of, of carryover effect when it comes to their baseline measurements of urine volume production. So that was, that was reassuring. Did you look at stomal outputs? Do we have volumes on stoma output? Yeah. So for this particular trial design, we did not look at changes in stoma output. You know, there was an inclusion criteria um, of having a stoma output more than 1,500 grams per day as recorded in their medical records, but we did not measure it pre or post-treatment. However, we have carried out an open-label trial of a 5 milligram apricotide where we applied metabolic balance studies. And there we got a more comprehensive picture of absorption, also looking at their fecal output and the dietary intake as well. Excellent. And that paper is also published with you as the first author in JPEN, right? For our listeners who would like to see that. Yes. It's a very nice correlate to this paper. One more question on this. Did you look at the urine volume over time? I'm wondering how quickly it was that their urine volume increased within the four weeks of treatment. So that is a very, very, really um, interesting question as well. We did also look at change in uh, urine output directly after initiating treatments. And those, those changes are not included in this paper. However, um, an important limitation to that is that 
you know, these are patients who will have parental support programs that will vary depending on day of the week. So it was, it was easy to construct the pre and post treatment measurements for the same days of the week to make them precisely comparable. However, the urinary production we measured straight after the first dosing did not coincide on the same days. So that's, uh, or the same time point, which, which make it harder to interpret. But they're at least looking at that data with has not been published and with those limitations, there didn't seem to be a direct effect within the 48 hours just after dosing uh, urinary production. And we don't know the patients didn't measure their urine at home. So we really don't know temporally. No, exactly. Yeah. Okay. That's good. There's so much to learn about this, right? I think I've used our time and really grateful for your uh, expertise in sharing this work with us. Congratulations to you and your colleagues. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. For our listeners, please do go to the May 2022 issue of JPEN and read this paper, a preglutide, a novel glucagon-like peptide 2 analog improves fluid absorption in patients with short bowel syndrome intestinal failure, findings from a placebo-controlled randomized phase 2 trial.